Ladies and gentlemen, it's 42 to Doomsday. With our very special guest, Mr. Rob Lloyd. Taking our cue from Kermit's introduction, tonight's podcast is about the comedy in Doctor Who. Our very special guest to assist us with that is none other than Rob Lloyd. Rob, welcome to the podcast again. It is a pleasure to be back and it is an absolute honour to have you mash up my uh, favourite things of all time. You've got Doctor Who, you've got the Muppets, you've got 42 to Doomsday, you've got everything I need to uh, you know, fall in love with you guys for the rest of uh, humanity. That's lovely, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Now, since we last spoke to you, uh, you've uh, completed the, uh, the tour for the Science of Doctor Who, is that right? Yes, we've only just announced it when I was here at the start of the year, and we've uh, finished up uh, about a month ago our national tour all around Australia, which was wonderful stuff. We had huge crowds, really supportive, um, got a lot of great exposure. Um, the shows just went off amazingly well we had just so much not just love of doctor who but a new way of looking at doctor who because you know the bbc have got connections with the symphonic obviously and events like that but to have something which was you know an attempt to be quite educational as well as entertaining um was a really good uh, step up for the bbc to support us on uh, this national tour and hopefully hopefully we get to do it all again very soon are there any plans to i mean are you going to uh, go around Australia again, or do you think you'll take it overseas to the world? We're 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 hoping to. We've got some ideas um, for places we didn't get to this year, and also uh, places possibly close by overseas. Um, you can uh, dot the i's and cross the, the t's, z's, cross the z's on that one, the z cars on that one. Mm. Uh, so yeah, we're hoping to uh, you know finalise some more uh, dates and new locations for 2015, the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who being screened in the Land of Oz. Apparently. Unearthly child, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you should have seen the look of panic and fear on Mark's face going, is that right? Is that... Oh, yes, it's okay. All right. An amazing experience. It's the amount of uh, uh, families that came out, a lot of young kids who are um, fascinated by science as well as Doctor Who. That was my favorite part. At the end of the show, the scientists actually get to come out and talk to the audiences, and they were treated like rock stars. It was amazing. They got to sign programs and talk about you know, all the intricate details of how science works in the universe and on a very, you know, basic everyday level. Um, it was just, you know, for me as a comedian who's so used to taking the center stage, it was good to step back and uh, let these scientists, um, you know, revel in it for a bit. It was wonderful. And what sort of clips were you allowed to use? Was it mainly uh, the new series or classic? We made a point of um, wanting a range of all the doctors. Uh, and so... That was one of the most enjoyable bits for me. They said, okay, well, we've got all these scientific theories and we need to find a clip for each one. And I just went, oh, just, yeah, yeah it's, it was a dream come true to sit back and go, okay, let's find a clip for each doctor. And we pretty much uh, got 
every doctor we didn't get a McGann one because that was there's a bit of tension with the BBC and the McGann telly movie with the whole you know half human thing oh well and also the fact it was done with Americans yeah, and stuff like yeah. that so who actually owns it yeah who yeah. owns it yeah yeah like they can't even use Grace Holloway or yeah. Yeah, because that's the rights of Universal or whatever um, so yeah I was very particular about getting a clip from each doctor we had a couple of clips from the Baker era we had a couple of clips from uh, the John Pertwee era Every doctor appears uh, except Sylvester, McGann, and Matt Smith, but we had a clip from the Matt Smith era and we had a clip from uh, the Sylvester McCoy era. So no War Doctor yet and no uh, Capaldi as yet. We'll see what happens uh, on the 23rd of August. Pandemonium, I'm sure. (laughs) So yeah, that that was what I was most happy about, allowing... Uh, every doctor to have a moment so it was great to see Hartnell clips Troughton clips um, Peter Davison clip we had with Chameleon which I found I took a, a morbid joy in, in showing everyone uh, Chameleon and we got a, a Colin Baker clip in there with the Centaurans so because we had to do something on cloning and we could have used you know you know any of the Centauran appearances but we didn't have a Colin Baker clip so we said you know help with it let's show the Centaurans in the worst possible form yes uh, six foot no, six yeah, foot yeah. high and, yeah. and I, was, I was allowed to make a joke about the fact that you know that the the Centaurans in the two Doctors are two of the worst actors ever <laughs> to play the Centaurans. I took a lot of joy in that. And since uh, the science of Doctor Who tour has wound down, what have you been uh, doing since? Have you have you plans for anything in the future? Or I've been working on it for the last year, and I've been finally able to announce it because the tickets went on sale today, um, uh, being you know the the second of August. Uh, I'm going to Chicago. I'm taking Who Me to Chicago for the Chicago Fringe Festival, which I'm very excited about. They've invited me personally and are bringing me over to do three shows at the end of August and the start of September for their for their little festival, which I'm really excited about. So I head over in about three weeks and I fly out the day that Doctor Who screens in the UK, the 23rd, and I arrive the same day in Chicago, but on that weekend is uh, Chicago Comic-Con. So I get to go to Chicago Comic-Con in my tenant outfit, hand out flyers, and Matt Smith's going to be there with Karen Gillan. So, oh, but Karen go. Gillan's only doing the Saturday, so but I'll get, I've already got my photo lined up with Matt Smith. Oh, fantastic. So, so going to promote the show there, Do Who Me in Chicago, which is you know a city I've been wanting to go to pretty much all my life because it's the home of improvisation, which is my first love of performing, and the home of jazz, which is something I've always wanted to get into, but you know, it's always too high class for me. I go, you know, I could listen to some jazz, or I could listen to some, you know, things of stone and wood, or I could listen to some Oasis. No, or, or The Cure. No, let's just jazz. No, bugger it, I'll just listen to my bad music. Uh, so yeah, so Chicago's the next big thing that I'm off to, and, uh, and that's going to be really, really awesome. I can't wait to actually go, like, I went to Edinburgh last year and to do Who Me, in the home of Doctor Who in the UK was amazing but now I get to go to America where Doctor Who has always had this you know underground yeah underground type of movement it's picking up Matt Smith era was very very helpful in that it's really burst out into the States I mean it was uh, didn't um Capaldi recently have an interview with was it Entertainment uh, Weekly he did he did and that's um, the massive spread a massive um uh, uh, like four page spread in Entertainment Weekly which is the big um, uh, entertainment magazine over there because uh, Matt Smith got into it when he first his first series was out so to get a new one for Capaldi is amazing and the photos from that look incredible mm. generally, generally Coleman has actually become more attractive I think 
I didn't think it was possible. Um, she's not. She's face. not as attractive as C- Peter Capaldi yet, <laughs> but she's uh, she's getting close. Capaldi is still gorgeous. I saw Karen Gillan in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy on Friday night, and she looked uh, quite fit actually. You went to Guardians? Is yeah, it good? It was, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I and she plays really Nebula, doesn't yes, she? Yeah. Yes, very well done. It was a great mixture of comedy and uh, action, and uh, yeah, recommend it, definitely. Does Gillen get to do much in it, or is it just like look cool, or is there time? No, she does. She does a bit of fighting in yeah, it, yeah. and a bit of martial arts. So, oh, cool. yeah, she's moving quite uh, quite well. Any chance to get any of the acting in, or is it just more like just a physical... A little bit of acting, but it's just more physical. Yeah. And, yeah. She's in danger of uh, breaking out in the States isn't she well she's just got she's the lead in her own tv series um it's called it's called selfie which is a modern version of pygmalion so she plays the eliza doolittle character and they've got the guy from uh star trek and uh, harold and kumar who plays sulu in star trek he's playing the henry higgins character who's trying to she's like a self-obsessed internet type of person and he's trying to refine her into a more you know Less yeah. self-obsessed. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So that's what I've heard. That that's what uh, Karen Gillan's doing. She'll be at Comic Con. Just uh, a thing on uh, because you've you've been overseas taking your tour. Um, do you do you find that the you know audiences around the world are the same? They they laugh at the same sort of things, or do you get a different sort of vibe? You know, here in Australia or overseas uh, in the UK, audiences are the same no matter where you are. Well, especially with the type of show I do with with Who Me, you generate a, a certain type of person and just a certain type of sense of humor and a certain type of uh, uh, mentality so I'm not like completely out of my comfort zone but um, one thing I picked up while I was in the UK is the traditions there like I make a joke in my show about um, uh, pan. I make a joke about when I was a kid uh, growing up I did a lot of pantomimes in my youth and so pantomime isn't really big here in Australia it was a big part of my uh youth growing up because there was a tradition of pantomimes in country New South Wales in this town where I lived but it's mostly a UK thing an mm. English thing you know the, yeah. the tradition of pantomimes Christmas. and Christmas pantos mm. so when I mentioned Christmas pantomimes they'd always respond to that really positively and they'd always do the usual thing of sort of like oh no you haven't oh yes every show without fail they'd get that type of reference so all little obscure references to the UK they'd pick up on so I'm very interested to go to the States and see how they take the humor because it's my yeah I've, I've, ha- I've had i do an international version of the show and i do an australian version of the show so all the aussie references i've always replaced with more generic generic yeah. american references even in the uk i did that so i'll be doing more kim kardashian jokes or j- making fun of joan rivers as opposed to making fun of uh, rafferty's rules <laughs> <laughs> and just before we move on to our main topic rob um we, mark and i were very lucky to go see uh, i think it was a cut down version of your who me uh, stand-up routine. I'm just interested in how uh, you bring together a routine like that. What's the writing process like? Because, I mean, it's one thing to write a novel or a script, but I suppose, I mean, you are writing a comedy script, but what's that like? Is it a collaborative process? Do you work with someone or is it all in your head? Every comedian has their own approach to it. I come from a an acting background as a trained actor and um, also a trained improviser as well and working mostly in improvisation for most of my comedy career so I don't come from the more traditional stand-up format of a lot of stand-ups I know just basically write jokes or they have a dictaphone and any joke they think of they they record it down and they build their material through solid writing and working it on the stage whereas I come from a more collaborative attitude of 
pressing a recorder, talking with a director or a fellow performer, and we develop characters and scenes and scenarios and improvise and make up off, off the top of our heads and record it all, and then I go back and take little moments here and there and shape a script that way. And so with, with this particular performance that I did um, a couple of weeks ago, I've been invited by a, a production company to be a, represent Australia, uh, Australian Whovians, so looking at Whovians all around the world, and they wanted to find Whovians who approach their love of Doctor Who more than just collecting and you know hoarding. <laughs> um, they wanted to find you know who find more creative ways of doing things, and so they picked up on me. And they specifically asked for things for me to do, so I had to shape elements of my show who may take moments of it to fit what they wanted to film. So. Uh, any references where I tongue and cheekily make fun of Doctor Who, I had to take out. Uh, any a little rude or cheeky or you know maybe a little bit naughty, I had to take out. And they wanted new material for um, Peter Capaldi. They said we want you to do specific Capaldi material. So when I did a podcast earlier this year, a live podcast, which I was helping out with, um, can I mention the the P word? If you must, I'll, I'll edit it later, but anyway. <laughs> I, 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 a live show of Preachers podcast live and I improvised a lot of jokes in there about Capaldi. And so I just grabbed that and redid it in the show. And it flowed quite well because I knew they weren't using the, the whole footage that I did. I did like half an hour on stage. I knew they'd be taking grabs here and there. So I didn't need to have that much fluidity to it. But the, the crowd were lovely. We were like packed in the venue that I'd booked and very supportive and, and caring and very much wanted it to go well so i couldn't have asked for anything uh better to sort of like be a part of this documentary which should be coming out uh if not the end of the year maybe a little bit sooner i was just gonna ask on that point how much do you feed off the reaction reaction to the audience i mean i suppose it's every uh comedian's nightmare to get up in front of a, a stage uh, on a stage with an audience that just doesn't react uh, as opposed to a very warm and i was in the in the audience then and there was a lot of laughter and a lot of you know, love for you and, and the routine. So how do you react to that sort of crowd interaction? That's my main love because I'm from improvisation and it works solely on audience feedback and audience involvement. So there's a lot of comedians who get up, just do their routine and don't really like engaging with the audience. Even if they do the customary, what do you do for a living? Where are you from? It's all very much staged and planned. They don't like to get outside their comfort zone and just think off the top of their heads whereas i i crave that type of performing i love that type of energy that getting on a stage having a vague idea of what you're doing but seeing how the every audience is different every audience has its own life and its own personality and i love finding the little intricacies and um uh little personas from each show and using that whether there's reoccurring jokes whether there's a a topical gag of the time and how to make each performance unique so people walk away from that particular show and they feel as if there's something that they didn't just get something that they see everywhere else i like having that element of having a polished well-rehearsed performance that is so well polished and so i know it in and out that i can afford to go off on a tangent and i can always come back a lot of improvisers just performers get up and go off on their own tangent and it's really loose and incoherent and a bit self-indulgent i always like to have a solid structure to come back to so i can afford to springboard off into a flight of fancy but they can always be drawn back to the story that has to push forward one final question before we move to our main topic uh, I noticed with uh, the, the fervor with which you discussed uh, Peter Capaldi in the in the performance that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Um, obviously, his he cemented his reputation in the UK with uh, in the thick of it. 
what do you think of I mean obviously he's not going to be playing the same role what do you think of having a comedian a la you know John Pertwee in the role of the Doctor not that Capaldi is you know has a massive comedic background Capaldi's a, an odd beast because he you know he was rejected from acting school so he went to art school instead um, and uh, got into music heavily into music and got into acting through that way um, his band never really picked up and so then and by chance he met a director on in a lift or something like that and that's what got him local hero and that's what started him off cementing his career as an established actor but also he would uh, touch on comedy working with Alexi Sale and working with you know Armando Iannucci so much now uh, but yeah it's it's interesting when you watch Doctor Who you look at the actors that they've had if they have more of a comedic background they play the role quite serious mm. so if you look at Hartnell had quite a you know successful career as a comedic actor but he played the role dead seriously you look at uh, Patrick Troughton was a very serious, well-respected actor, and he played it more comedically. John Pertwee played it straight, um, and he was a comedic actor. Tom Baker was a very straight actor, but he played it for the for the laughs. So those type of you, you see that definition. Even even um, Sylvester McCoy, who was you know a, you know had um, ferrets down his pants and part of Ken Campbell's roadshow. Yeah, Ken the, the um, comedy. Uh, when I met um, uh, Sylvester in Edinburgh, I've met him a couple of times. He never remembers who I am. But that's <laughs> no, okay. Same problem. He never remembers who anyone. No, yeah, he doesn't remember problem. anyone. But he, when I asked him about uh, talking about Ken, uh, Ken Campbell and just the joy that he has to talk about, because he, he was a, a phenomenal performer, and you know, John Cleese holds Ken in so much high regard, and Ken was actually in an episode of Falls Towers. Towers. Yeah, yes. he came in last minute because yeah. the other actor had to pull out. That's right. And he's great in the anniversary episode. Yes. It's one of the everyone forgets that episode, but it's actually genuinely one of the funnier of the 12 episodes it's yeah <laughs> great fun yeah great fun um so yeah the it's always the way of more of a comedic actor takes it in a more serious uh avenue and that's how it works out so capaldi works balances that light of comedic and straight actor beautifully and that's why he's got so much respect for the in the thick of it because he came from more of a you know he wasn't a, a stand-up who didn't have any experience of acting he knew how to channel real emotions and, oh, and he channeled that emotion you know, he wasn't just an angry man he did so many different layers yeah. of Malcolm Tucker's anger so it was never you know one dimensional it was this beautifully nuanced rage and the that, lines are brilliant oh yeah, yeah well I, from what I've heard rumours are that Capaldi if he comes back for a second season he's going to try and get Armando and Iannucci to write an episode which would be incredible it would be actually he could get Partridge oh man yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah so I've, it's that's the greatness of Doctor Who as a role that whoever you know embodies that character they can approach it in a different way or they can change the way that people would perceive them to play it and do it down a different angle like everyone would thought okay well Matt Smith's in the role that he's going to play at that you know young vibrant um, uh, you know matinee idol type of thing and he had that element of that youth and vigor but the age and the weariness that he brought to the role what nobody expected was absolutely wonderful I mean I think he lost a little bit of it with the second half of season seven 
but especially in those early years when uh, he channeled something different, he you know surprised us all. And that's the great thing about the role. You can surprise audiences and even surprise yourself with what you can unlock with the potential of the role. So when it comes to comedy, that's the same thing. You, know, you may not be a comedian at heart, but you can explore that through the role. Or you may have done nothing but comedy, but you want to try something more serious. You can explore that uh, with this you know, role that's limitless. So our main topic tonight is comedy and Doctor Who. So I'll throw it out there. Is Doctor Who suited to comedy? I think yes. What do you think, Rob? I think yes. What do you think, Mark? I think yes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was. We're here all evening. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, we're going to be here all evening. We've got nothing more to discuss. We all agree. Um, One of the dangers of Doctor Who, when it was the waning years of... um, uh, the 70s was when comedy was pushed more than the drama or the theories or the ideas and that became this preconceived idea that Doctor Who and comedy went hand in hand but the one thing you need to know is you know you look at Star Wars you look at Star Wars and you can list all the parodies of Star Wars that there is you know you look at um you know the robot chicken guys do amazing stuff family guy does wonderful stuff there's the one man Star Wars show by Charles Ross there's this great you know, there's a wonderful YouTube clip, made, oh, not a uh, video clip that was made back in the early noughties, even before, like, late, late 90s, I think, Troops. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was uh, the Stormtroopers on Tatooine in the style of uh, cops. And so there's this great tradition of comedy connected with, with, with Star Wars. But when they tried to incorporate it into the prequels, like really tried to crowbar the comedy in there with your Jar Jar Binks and your slapstick comedy of episode two on the factory, it didn't work because it steps away from the reality of the scene and the comedy comes from a natural point of view as opposed to setting up the situation. And that's the same with Who. As soon as you try to telegraph a joke or you try and set up something specifically to be funny, it takes it away from the reality of this situation. That is an unusually odd, stupid situation that would never be believable if you add in comedy for the sake of it. It takes away from it. And that's why there's been no successful comedy parodies of Doctor Who, really. Because, you know, the the comedy in Doctor Who works because it's 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 making it's it's laughing at the horrors that they're in. If you're trying to step outside and make fun, it destroys the whole point of Doctor Who. So, you know, you can list Star Wars parodies off the off the you know you know until until the cows come home and with other franchises as well they do it very very well Lord of the Rings there's some great parodies in, out there as well but with Doctor Who parodies of that uh, it's you can't really list that many who do it successfully because comedy in Doctor Who has to be done in a very delicate very relaxed way not relaxed very detailed way it has to be looked thoroughly it can't just be thrown in there or crowbarred in there. There was that French and Saunders uh, sketch that was done, I think, in the <laughs> late 90s, where it was really, really bad. They never actually broadcast it, and they put it on to the Curse of Fatal Death. Which actually went longer than the actual Curse of Fatal Death. Yeah, it actually <laughs> did, yeah. And it wasn't very funny at all, to be honest. No, well, you look, and they, they had clips of stuff like Lenny Henry doing Doctor Who yes. stuff, um, Victoria Wood doing Doctor Who stuff, even, in many ways, Curse of Fatal Death, looking at that as a, as a comedy thing as well. It's very difficult to get 
comedy right mm. in Doctor Who. It has to be done in a very specific way. And if you push it a little bit too far, it goes out of sync and it knocks the whole episode out of whack. Or a whole season, like or season a, 17. Or a whole season, exactly. Doctor Who has different types of comedy where... Unicorn and the Wasp Inc. is like a farce episode. Yes. And then you can switch it back to like Time and the Rani and that's slapstick. <laughs> Unintentional slapstick. Time and the Rani is very pantomime. You yeah. watch it, it's it's overlit. The costumes are like, you know, uh, using the brightest material ever that you would never see in nature. But you look at something like Unicorn and the Wasp, it's done in that farce style. Mm. And especially, but it's quite suitable to the Agatha Christie format because they mm. got the, the costumes, the details, um, every that all of that was right. And so it could afford to play out in that French farce style. Whereas uh, with something like, you know, Delta and the Bannerman or you know time in the rani where it is just solely a case of no this is just a live performance that just happens to be shot in multi-cam and delta and the bannerman is more whimsy isn't it yes yeah 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 and it was pushed a little bit too far it had that 80s excess so you know whimsy whimsy works very well in doctor who and in many ways matt smith is quite a very a very whimsical doctor after the intensity of of david tennant and um and of course the grittiness of of Eccleston, but to have, whimsy works if it's if it's balanced out. That whimsy has to have have come from a point of, you know, uh, responding against the horrors that's mm. happening there. So, what do you reckon, Rob? I made some notes earlier, and, and I agree with you about the, the the comedy coming naturally out of the script or the performances. That if you, as you said, if you tried to make a comedic episode of or, or story of Doctor Who, it would just basically collapse. Um, it would you know take the audience out of the reality of what they're watching. And I think it'd be very difficult to sustain given the type of show that, that Doctor Who is. Um, and the, the sort of, I mean, you stuff like black comedy like you see in, say, Revelation of the Daleks where the entire setup is, uh, you know, a, a, a discussion of, of black comedy, uh, even down to the point where the Doctor uh, goes to shake what's left of Davros's hand and then thinks better of it. Um, it does underscore the grittiness or the darkness of, of what you're seeing but allows the audience a sort of a, a, a moment of relief from that. Um, and I think if it arises naturally from the, from the proceedings, it, it works much better than attempting to, you know, as we said before, crowbar an episode in front of people. Yeah, and it can because the show does vary in genre from, from you know, decade to decade and producer to producer, you know, there's many different forms of comedy as well. There's, you know, like we talked about, there's fast, there's whimsy, there's slapstick comedy, there's... Um, you know, beautiful crafted wordplay and satire from you know the the Sunmakers, which is yeah. one of my favourite, you know, comedy comedy led stories. The 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 sci-fi is there to. In many ways, it's like you know Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone. He used science fiction to comment on issues of the day. Um, he wanted to use fantasy, so you know, fantasy and sci-fi to do address serious issues, and that's what you know Robert Holmes did. He was annoyed and angry with you know Inland Revenue, so what does he do? He writes a whole Doctor Who theme story about it and makes these beautiful references about you know, you know everyone runs from the tax man, and, you know, and all the you know, um, you know paying your taxes is more painful all than the death or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. All that type of stuff and all those little intricate jokes, and so a lot of you know hardcore Doctor Who fans are quite offended by something like Sunmakers because they think it's making fun of Doctor Who. Whereas in many ways, Doctor Who is being used as a tool to comment on stuff in society. And that's what comedy is all about. Comedy is trying to deal with things that we, you know, that annoy us, that anger us, that frustrate us, that horrify us every day and, you know, take away some of its power. Something like the Sunmakers 
it does operate on a number of levels, as, as Rob said, and it, and that gives it that helps give Doctor Who its broad appeal. I mean, you know, you're a kid and you're sitting there, and, and then there's chases up and down corridors, and there's Leela going into the furnace or whatever it is, and that's quite thrilling. But the parents sitting in the background are sort of chuckling away with a wry smile, thinking about, you know, I'm going to have to do the taxes this year and all that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and Doctor Who, I thought, lost a little bit of that during the 80s where it became uh, sort of modulated, became a bit one note. Yeah, it's very dry. And it's, it, you know, especially during the first Colin Baker series where it becomes a bit just grim. Uh, and there are lighter moments, but they're... The lot of moments that you see where the doctor, you know, says, "Forgive me if, if I don't join you to the, the to the people in the acid bath." And killing Shockai and saying, "You're just desserts," mm. but he's just but he's mothballed him. It, that's quite that's that's amusing in in one way, but it's not something that will draw a broad audience in. And no. I think Doctor Who sort of forgot that. Yeah. I mean, J and T's drive in season eighteen to kill Comedy Stone dead. <laughs> um, well, it worked. But then I, I think I think it, it probably worked too well in 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 a way, and it sort of drove perhaps a, a, a portion of the audience away that would otherwise have sat down and and had fun with it. And it's all yeah, and especially in that eighties time that it was very much people you know, with that famous quote that J and T said you know the memory cheats a little bit, and especially in the eighties everyone was looking back at that seventies era because it wasn't being repeated in the UK at all really. There was that policy of not showing any past doctors while a previous doctor well while a present doctor is on. So everyone was building up this revered love of the classic series of the seventies era and all these amazingly dark, rich, gothic stories. And so people were more critical who were hardcore fans of J and T's approach. Whereas yeah, J and T had a different approach to comedy to say Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes's comedy was completely different to, to Graham Williams. And they do work if they balance it right. I mean, the greatest comedy writer of the last 50 years was in charge of Doctor Who. And it's one of the worst years of the Tom... Well, it is the worst year of the Tom Baker era. But he, you know, Douglas Adams knew how to write a joke. He knew how to write a funny scene. Yeah. But he didn't know how to run a show. He didn't know how to be a script editor. And But his view of comedy was very good. And he always said it, but nobody followed him. He said, as soon as you, you know say this is a comedy line i will deliver it as a comedy line it takes away from the reality and he said every all those gags that he wrote in the show had to be delivered deadpan and um it's very rarely done and so the the perfect balance of it all comes the perfect storm of that graham williams douglas adams era is city of death because mm. everything just works the comedy is great the the, the farce, whimsical nature of it balances out well with the serious issues. And was it Tom Baker who said, you know, the Doctor is the figurehead for the audience, so if he is laughing and making jokes, you know everything is going to be all right. But as soon as the Doctor gets serious, then you go, okay, no, this is actually a serious situation. So that's, yeah, finding that balance is very tricky to do. So I'm curious where you say that season 17 we're talking about, the rest of it was a, would you regard it as a bit of a disaster? I do. I know. I, I, me personally, <laughs> I know I might be in the minority here, but yeah, yeah I think. Um, so you think it goes off the rails for the, the specific reason that City of Death doesn't go off the rails? That Williams lost control of Tom Baker, and Tom Baker tilted too far to the, you know, to the lighter side. Well, they were given the the comedy direction from the BBC. They were working with a script editor who was incre- who you know had been work- unemployed for most of his life and just within the space of a couple of years had become the most prolific writer in the UK with Hitchhiker's Guide and so he was writing novels and you know uh, TV series and new radios and plays and plus on top of that being a script editor for a show 
and you need a solid focused vision in script editing when it comes to Doctor Who, especially if you look at you know Robert Holmes and Hinchcliffe's era, they knew exactly what they wanted. And when they were ready to go, you know, if they'd pushed it any further, it would have been too much. You know, um, uh, Barry Letts and Terence Dix knew exactly what they wanted as well. Whereas when it came to Douglas Adams, he came in and went, well, I've never had this position before. I've haven't had, th- had this role. And they were taking a risk with a young, ultimately talented writer. But they, you need to, if you're a script editor, you need to be in complete control. You need to be exactly you know, focused and, you know, have a myopic vision of what you want to do. And that's just not, that was never uh, Douglas Adams. He was never that focused. He always would go off on whatever tangent he went. And so it, it, it just lost that discipline, that whole era, for, that year for me is, it just doesn't have the control and focus and, you know, the cool, calm hand over it like other seasons do. I was thinking this afternoon about the horns of Nymon, and I was thinking you, that... Did you wake up in a cold sweat? <laughs> well, just your point has just sort of underscored what I was thinking, that if taken another way, the horns of Nymon could be a very dark and dramatic story, but it appeared that at all stages of the production process, whoever was in charge lost control. So um, the bloke who played Soldade decided to play it as, as the, the hammiest thing uh, since, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> A pig farm, and uh, the, the, peop- the people, you know, designing the, the the sets were just this rickety thing, and uh, and whoever just come up with the, the costume for the nine on themselves on you know platform heels, clearly out to lunch when they were doing that. Yeah. But if you went the other way, and it's a story of galactic hopping parasites who you know convince otherwise good people to aid them in their planet destructive ways. And then move on, leaving a husk behind, and that's quite horrifying when you think about it. But the actual finished production on television is—it's entertaining, but it, is it good Doctor Who? When I look, like say for example, Nightmare of Eden, which I I had the pleasure of watching uh, in preparation for this podcast, the themes are quite heavy: drug dealing, drug running. Uh, yes, you've got uh, Trist, who has got a cod German accent and says you know things like he died. And things like that. But as the story progresses and things get a bit more hairy for him, his his demeanour changes from comedic goon to, oh, I'm actually in a bit of a situation here. But I think what lets it down, again, is the production of it and the way it's been interpreted in terms of the, some of the acting uh, performances. They're not going to do train spotting about drug running in Doctor Who. <laughs> toilet diving. Toilet, I mean, just imagine Tom Baker in a, in a, going into a toilet. And there's a great line in there saying, yeah, when the mandrel's about to attack their passengers and says to Rig the passengers are going to get, you know, just killed and blah, blah, blah. And Rick turns around and goes, well, who cares? They're an economy anyway. <laughs> Which is a really great line about budget airlines 30 years in the future. And and the passengers are wearing something out of the, out of the buggles. But yeah, it is that case of sort of like... Um we're used to Doctor Who. We we know mm. Doctor Who. We 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 can look past the budgets and we can look past the 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 crappy sets and we can look past what they do. And we mm. I actually admire what those production crews did with the money that they had. Mm. But it's a case of yeah, it's all about the delivery. It's all about the approach. They could have the crappiest sets and the weirdest costumes ever, but if those interpretations of the character if that script isn't focused if that direction isn't at hand to make it play for real then you're gonna you know if the actors don't take it seriously if the characters aren't real in the moment why should we so even in you know sylvester mccoy's final couple of seasons where they really tried to shape a more mature gritty 
approach and very daring as well it's 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 actually quite good that you know no one was looking over the bbc weren't really looking at cartmel and uh, john nathan turner at that time because he was inspired by alan moore and you know uh, ad comics and all that type of stuff the graphic novels of the of the late 80s so there's some really intense stuff in those last two seasons and there's the comedy is still there especially for sylvester mccoy playing it quite gritty but it, that balance of uh, the gritty dark manipulator of the universe with his you know playing of spoons or his physical slapstick comedy but it's always played straight it's always played for laughs and that's why they changed uh, not for laughs that's why they changed it from um his first season where it was quite still pantomime s they went yeah, yeah let's make the let's make the reality of the situation the comedy come from there and so that's when the comedy works is if if you take the material seriously, that's why some of the best performances when they get serious actors in there and they go, no, 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 let's respect this script. Let's respect this idea. And a lot of the actors saying, let's respect the audience that we're getting. Whereas a lot of actors who come in and play it, oh, this is just for kids. Then automatically you've you've lost any believability or cre- credit in that performance. As a snotty-nosed teenager, I actually hated season 17, and mainly because I hadn't seen that. I was reading what all, these, all the fanzines <laughs> were saying about it. I remember reading a fanzine where they called the director Kenny McBain scum. But now, watching season 17 now, I think it's a lot of fun. But I can understand, though, Tom Baker does go too far in some, in some of those circumstances and, and, and scenes. Given what came before with Hinchcliffe and Holmes, I, th- I think the problem with a lot of fans is they eventually grow up and they become po-faced and serious teenagers. And, and, um, and, you know, here's their show. Suddenly the lead actor is being funny and you get, there's a lot of dislike for the Graham Williams era simply because, you know, this, this serious show that they've sort of grown up with is not, is, is having fun at its own expense. And I think by, by connection, they believe that the show is making fun of them, making (laughs) making fun of their love for the show, which is where a lot, you know, called the psychology there are that's why they probably don't like it as much as they otherwise should i always have to keep on saying to people it's doctor who it's not batman okay the, mm. yeah it's it's not you know air the amount of fans going we want it dark we want it serious i mean if 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 hinchcliffe and holmes had kept on doing what they're doing you look you look at the talents of wen chiang which is their final swan song it's their farewell go this is everything that we are and that pretty much epitomized everything of their three-year tenure and, but you couldn't have gone any further. They mm. explored every element they could and it would have just started repeating itself and would have just burned out. Mm. And so that's why they needed the change with the Williams era to bring in that element. And there was nobody else that the Doctor could have had that year of that romp era. Of course, if you were two eternal time travelers like the Doctor and Romana, it would be this fun, whimsical type of trip through the galaxy. But, you know, be careful what you wish for. That's why I always say to Doctor Who fans who go, oh, we want it dark, we want it real, we want it gritty. He said, well, if you get that, then you, it's, it's going to destroy the show because it's fundamentally meant to be for everybody. It was always meant to be parents, children, grandparents, children of all ages sitting around and watching this collective experience, getting scared, having a laugh, getting a bit excited, something for the dads, something for the mums, everyone. But it's just, if it's specifically focused on one type of genre, one type of mood, one type of audience member, you kill the essence of what you love and what I love and what everyone loves about this show. What are you expecting? You know, you expect, you know, 
you know, Batman at the controls. No, we don't want Batman at the controls, John Pertwee. We're happy with you at the controls. And Benson in a nappy. <laughs> I mean, that, that is slapstick, that ending of the Time Monster, where oh. Benson's in a nappy, and they're all turning around all laughing like the end of a Brady Bunch episode. And he says the line, yeah, he says yeah. the line, could anyone tell me what the hell's going on? Yeah, exactly. Like in Time Warrior as well, you've yeah. got, you know, Iron Gron and, um, and uh, Blood Axe, fantastic characters, played for real, but they can be scary but they can also be hilarious as well beautiful balance of comedy and and that type of stuff uh it's yeah it's it's all about balance and if you get too much of one thing if it's pushed too far to the whimsical you lose the heart the heart and the believability if you push it too much to the gritty and stuff like that you lose the fun so my favorite episode of the modern series and i get a lot of derision for this but my favorite episode from the modern series is dinosaurs on a spaceship because i can just watch it Anytime, any mood I'm in, I can chuck it on. And people go, oh, Blink, so intense, you need to watch Blink. Yeah, but it gets draining after a while watching Blink. All this. Oh, it gets draining watching, you know, those really... In- oh, midnight. You can only watch Midnight every once in a while. Yes, it's incredible, but you don't want to watch it all the time. You've got to have some sort of fun there. And there's elements... I think Dinosaurs on a Spaceship encapsulates everything of that Matt Smith era. It's comedy, it's fast-paced, it's a little bit dark at times, it's got... Uh, element of family and truth there I'm, I'm an exception to the rule I know a lot of people don't feel that way and I've got a lot of people arguing me with it but it's that balance of the comedy is is done at a nice level but when he needs to he, he kicks in with the dramatic stuff like the realisation that the Silurians have been executed in such a horrendous way is just beautifully delivered not pushed too far not held back so it's moments like that it's all about balance when I've walked away from a movie or a TV show that had, I've felt really satisfied with it and really happy and really entertained is where they've got that mix right. I mean, I can happily sit down and watch something really grim and gritty and, and, and walk away and think, that, that's really dramatic and I've enjoyed that. But it leaves a sour aftertaste in your mouth. But if I come away from um, a, a movie or a TV show where it has all those elements, it has the darkness, it has the action, it has the comedy... Uh, it, it, it feels to me like I've, I've, I've just soaked up something really uh, entertaining. Yeah. And I think it's always where they get that balance right, where they have the comedy there. I mean, there are, you know, there are a number of Cary Grant movies that I can remember where there, there's been action and there's been drama, but there's also been the comedy. And I've had many, many years of, of good memories from movies like that, some of the Hitchcock movies. Oh, Hitchcock was the master of getting you know, the fun of film, but also the fun of being terrified and balancing comedy and fear and serious issues um hitchcock was just you know the master at that you know there's so much love for the dark knight trilogy when that came out i know we're going off tangent but i'm afraid to go back and watch them because it's exactly what the fanboys wanted Mm. nolan gave this yeah be careful what you wish for the fanboys wanted dark gritty michael mann-esque reality-based batman and you got it over three films and it's intense and dark and it doesn't let up and I'm afraid to go back and watch them because I loved them when I first saw them. But I'm thinking back at it now going, they take it way too seriously. They take everything so seriously. And the concept at its heart is a little bit ridiculous. A man dressing up as a bat and beating up bad guys. So it's the same thing as well with, with Doctor Who. If they take it too seriously, it kind of starts to reflect on it. And you go, this is just a guy traveling around in time and space and starts to be you know, detrimental to the actual quality of the show. So I don't, you know, it should never get too carried away in the darkness, no matter how much the hardcore fans want it. The film Batman and Robin is almost like a Graham Williams 
yeah. analogy and bring it back there and where the Dark Knight returns and, and the, the Nolan trilogy is very I suppose you can say JNT where it's very serious and very dry yes um, but yes they did sort of lose something I mean I can't stand Batman and Robin anyway so awful, <laughs> awful film I like season 17 I, I think my tastes towards the Williams era have changed as I got older and I, I find the Williams era a lot of fun even though I do think uh, Underworld is awful but uh, again I watched the Sunmakers and I always thought it was dull beforehand, but I think because I'm actually in the middle of doing my tax return at the moment, I actually got a lot out of it watching it this time. And uh, I love Richard Leach's performance as Gatherer Hayden, oh. and I kept watching it and I thought, do you know, he's great, but do you know who'd be really good in this role? Kenneth Williams. Because <laughs> it's very, very similar. The way that it's written by Holmes as well yeah. is great, like the changing of words that we know mm. then, like instead of mahogany, it's mahogany. Mahogany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those type of little things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I am gratified, and the, the, the guy who plays um, the collector right at the end. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the, the and so Hag, yeah. so beautiful. He looks a little bit um, uh, Dudley Moore, but yeah, that uh, yeah. You look at okay. You look at that season. You've got um, Horror Fang Rock. Is That's that the right. Horror Fang Rock at the start of that season. Okay, and that was a script from the letter. That is a, a, a masterpiece, but it is so grim. Yeah. It is so dark. There is no light in that thing whatsoever. Tom yeah. Baker was in a mood all the way through. The Doctor hardly ever smiles or does anything funny in that whole thing. Leela's slapping and knocking people down. Everyone dies. Yeah. And then finally, Williams takes control. And then you get something like the Sunmakers, yeah. which is a complete opposite of that. So mm. it's just yeah, it's a, it's a messed up it's a it's it, a messed up. Turn it is a very messed up, messed up season because you're right. You got that, you got horror fang rock. I think it goes to invisible enemy, and then you're right back to sort of uh, Hinchcliffe again with uh, Fandal. With, with Fandal and the guy's blowing. You know, Doctor gives the guy a gun to blow his brains out. Yeah. I mean that's it's not exactly. <laughs> it's not tea time fair for the kids, is it? Exactly, but I, I image of the Fandal is underrated in my opinion. I think it's a fantastic story. Fandal is good. Yeah, yeah it's a it's it's especially that season is a case of the leftovers from the Hinchcliffe era and Graham Williams trying to shift in, in the new direction and so he's got more of a control over what he wants yeah. in um, you know in the key to time season and but it's, it's with anything with Doctor Who you stay too long and it starts to become stale you look mm. at um, you know the Patrick Troughton era and now we're finding more missing episodes or we don't we're not going to go on that Omni, Omni River but <laughs> his first season he's finding his feet so his character goes far and explores all the ranges of it and depending on who the director is so other directors let him go wild and then in the moon base Morris Barry I think said no play it straight and then in his second season he gets it he knows how to doc- be the doctor it's like serious and comedy and balance and whimsy and fast it's manipulative it's great and then but his final season he's kind of relaxed into it he knows it he doesn't try too much and that's why it's a lot more you know pushing it too far and so you can look that at the Williams era as well he's finding his place in the first season second and you know second season he's find his way and then his third season he loses control because he's given too much power to you know Douglas Adams or not enough control to take over it so any time on the show for too long you, you know your, your format comes stale and you can look at you know uh, Stephen Moffat as well could be looked at that way he's trying to change things up and mix things up but no matter how much he tries it's still forming the same you always need new people to come in new actors new production team new writers new vision of the show to keep it fresh <laughs>
So in preparation for this special episode, I assigned a whole list of stories for myself and the two Robs to go back and revisit. So I first of all gave the Romans to regular Rob. Yeah, that's me. Because that was the first time you've actually seen that story, I believe. Being the bad fan that I am, I never purchased it on VHS. And of course, I wasn't born when it was shown in Australia. The guys at BBC Miami came through for you then. (laughs) It was all black and white. It was quite appropriate. Exactly. Very much. I really enjoyed the Romans. It, it's as we've discussed before, it, it's that, that really good blend of dramatic. You know, Ian and Barbara have become slaves in the Roman Empire, which is probably the worst thing you could actually do in, in history. Uh, balanced up with, you know, a bit of slapstick with Nero, sort of Benny Hill style uh, running around the palace in Rome. Um, but I think they the, all those uh, elements work really in sync. They You know, the, the, the comedy sort of you know you, you sort of underestimate Nero you think he's a bit of a joke and then when you sort of realize that he's actually descending into madness and he's asking attendants to drink the poison wine and and he's actively planning the destruction of Rome by burning it, it's sort of it's, it's like a, a sort of a continuum and uh, I really enjoyed it and of course you could see that uh, Hartnell uh, had a great deal of fun with the script um, it, I think it's sort of down his alley I know, I, we all know that he loved being Doctor Who and, and saw it as being a sort of a connection with the, with the younger audience. And I think a, a lot of... Uh, he really responded well to that, 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 that script, particularly in the first couple of episodes where he's sort of taken uh, Vicky under his wing. And uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a big chance for him to engage in the sort of the verbal byplay and that sort of thing, and, and he just sort of rises to the script. Yeah, it's weird that he like, spent so much time, and even in that infamous interview that they found that they put on 10th Planet, where he's... Mm where he's almost rejecting mm. the the comedy uh, heritage that he has and trying to push more now I'm a serious, legitimate actor. But you see in the show how much glee and relish and how well he does the comedy stuff, mm. the comedy stuff in The Gunfighters. Like the episode before, he's hardly in and he hasn't been in quite a few stories, but he comes back, he's in pretty much every scene, and when he's there, he is on in The Gunfighters. In The Romans as well, he is on fire. He knows what he Literally wants to do. Literally in The Romans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's that case of a man who is trying so hard to get away from his heritage in, in the comedy scene, but when he does play for laughs... And when he plays all those more comedy uh, eccentric stories, that's where he excels, mm. really. And that how it balances out the gruffness of, the, of his character in these, you know, in these whimsical type settings. Mm. I find that quite interesting because you, yeah, you know, a lot of people go, you know, Hartnell's really good. And every time they bring that up, they're not talking about, you know, Hartnell's really good in, you know, one of you know one of the final episodes of of uh, Dalek Master Plan, or they're not talking about some of the more intenser stories. They're always referring to Hartnell being amazing in these more light-hearted adventures, and, and even in the light-hearted ones, in the more historical stuff, like you've got Romans, and we're going to move on to you know even in Time Meddler as well with the with the Vikings invading, and in Mythmakers as well, they're dealing with quite dark stories and start dark moments of history. And but they play they it's comedy all the way up until the last five minutes. Mm. You look at you know the Romans, it's comedy, 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 a little bit of seriousness, and you go, oh my gosh, it's quite dark. And you look at the Myth Makers, mm. comedy, 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 comedy. All right, massacre. Yeah. And the Gunfighters, comedy, 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 comedy. Okay, intense gunfight. Yeah. <laughs> which is intensely shot. Right. So it's yeah, when they blending in the comedy into these quite dramatic situations, it's 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 quite horrifying. But then you look at the massacre on St. Bartholomew's Eve, it was played, you know, 
straight, straight, straight dead the lines, and it's a it's a classic story. But it would have been interesting if they tried to incorporate more. And they bring in the whole mistaken identities with the doctors. They could have played that up for comedy in that that whole f- French fast type of thing of which doctor have we got now? But it was played more, you know, the 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 the. The Abbot yeah. of Anwar, kind yeah. of looking like Hartnell, or being Hartnell, was just more of a side thing. It never really was played up. Just the fact that near the end, the Doctor thinks that the Doctor's actually... I'm sorry, Stephen thinks the Doctor's dead. So it's really interesting in that classic era, they bring in comedy to warm the kids up, to teach them of the dark moments of history. But even with the gunfighters, I mean, the script in Hartnell uses the comedy to sort of uh, ease the blow. I mean, you see Charlie get killed... Um, <laughs> Uh, in 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 the in the in the saloon, and he sort of dramatically dies, and he's sort of spread eagled on the t- on the on the counter. But then the doctor engages in a bit of physical comedy there. He accidentally he puts his hand on the cork, <laughs> and then he reacts. He jumps, sort of thing, and and it's almost he's telegraphing to the kids at home. Look, you've seen someone get shot down in cold blood, but it's okay. You know, I've <laughs> I'm smiling. Everything's fine. Yeah, um, and it, that, that, that's my impression of it anyway. Because you hadn't seen the gunfighters before, had you, Rob? No, again, bad fan. I mean, it, it's it's funny because again, it's this this thing, this myth that arose around the gunfighters, especially in the early early eighties, that it was a terrible story, no one liked it, it was a bad script, and all that sort of thing, and it, you know, it almost killed the series off. But in reality, um, it is first to last. It's a really entertaining story hmm. um and you know the accents are variable at best <laughs> but uh, very variable at best but it's just it's just great entertainment and it is it, it i mean it's not laugh out loud comedic all the way through but you sit there sort of you know now nowadays you sit there with a bit of a wry smile on your face and you go i'm having fun with this and you can see that the everyone in the production was having a great deal of fun with it even even you know the person who played johnny ringo um who was very intense all the way through, It's everyone seems to be enjoying themselves and that's conveyed to the audience really, really well. And I don't think if you had that comedic element, you essentially you'd be getting a rehash of any sort of violent Western. Um, but with the comedy element, it, it, it embraces a wider audience, I feel. It does have an element of that old melodrama type thing of sort of like, you know, you boo the villain mm. and you cheer the hero and the damsel's tied to the to the um to the railway track type of thing so like you enjoy it's good fun it's taken it's it's played straight but it's good fun and you enjoy enjoy the relish of playing the bad guy and you have relish in hitting those moments it's like oh no yeah let's get out of this you know yeah cliffhangery type of situation i think that peter purvis actually comes out of that story really well because uh, i'm not i don't think he was known for his comedy acting beforehand was he no no, no he was but was his thinking... his reaction his reaction shots to a lot of what's going on, I, I found the, the most amusing elements of it. He's Marty yeah. McFly. He's dressed up like Marty McFly in Back to the Future 3. It's hilarious. Exactly. I mean, he's, he's forced to sing the damn song. <laughs> and, and as you say, he's dressed up like a dandy, effectively, with with tassels. And uh, he, he comes across really, really well. And I, it's it's a pity that he's the area that Peter Purvis is part of is so badly missing in the, in the, in the archives. Because I think that... Stephen is a an entertaining character. Stephen's one of my favourite characters from the Hartnell era because he had to carry the weight so much when you know Hartnell was was sick or taking time off. So Stephen had a lot more heavy lifting to do, and so he was there looking after um, Vicky and especially with with Dodo as well, who hadn't really had a defined character. They just kind of we've got to get a girl in here. We don't really know what type of girl. Let's just get her in there and then get her out again and get her out as you know mm. without even 
you know any that much of a real explanation but especially in the gunfighters you know jack jackie lane yeah does an amazing job and that's a she does a really solid performance and she hits dodo you know the strongest and that she ever did in the whole season because of that it's everyone is f- having a good time everyone knows what the script is knows what their role is it knows what it has to be it's not trying to be anything else but you look at something like the 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 feast of Stephen, the one-off episode within this you know this epic darkness that is the dalek master plan so instead of one story where you filter it through with comedy they've got this 12 episodes of darkness and we said well to balance it all out and this is going to be on christmas day let's make the whole episode a romp so it's all you know running out of film sets and you know you know mistaken identities at the at the at the at the police station and arriving at cricket turning up at the cricket all that type of stuff it's pushed way too far because they put 12 episodes worth of you know comic relief crammed it into one episode so it's pushed way too far too over the top and it's not you know in tune with anything it was it literally was (laughs) we need to fill 25 minutes on christmas day let's just give them this okay let's give them nothing with no substance whatsoever no real connection with the story no real connection with anything it's a 25 minute you know piece of faff (laughs) so the comedy from doctor who comes from dealing with the reality of the situation this was written comedy purely for comedy's sake so it's a quite a unique episode within the doctor who history one episode that has no other purpose than to just exist for itself and be comedy with no justification no background no grounding no foundation just go write something funny and light and make something that is inoffensive and has no repercussions and will not be remembered at all and so it has no real impact and so and the whole point of comedy is to make some sort of impact so it takes away any type of purpose of the comedy there it's an amazing waste of space <laughs> it was such a waste of space the bbc just canned it or burnt it <laughs> exactly yeah. one copy and then got rid of it talked a lot about the classic era but we haven't sort of ventured too far into the into the modern era um and i just wondering what we all thought about sort of you know the use of comedy in the mod in the modern era is it the same as as in the classic era or is there i mean i know we had catherine tate who's uh who's, whose reputation comes through comedy i mean what, what do we think of, of comedy in the modern era i'm all right with it what i like about catherine tate I I quite like Catherine Tate. I thought she was quite a good... She was, for me, she was the perfect companion for Tennant's Doctor because um, they matched each other incredibly well. Tennant is a very strong, very confident Doctor, a very overpowering Doctor in many ways. His charisma, his personality, his persona is quite overwhelming and it it just overran anything that um Freema Ajerman could do because she was quite a young and experienced actress and she wasn't given the strongest of material um and with Billy Piper's Rose there was no you know this is the doctor going this is everything that I am and the companion went from being actually I'm going to argue a bit with you here as she did with Eccleston she just went I'm going to do everything that you say so there was no real challenge so to bring Catherine Tate in who had this great background in comedy and is quite a strong personality a very over-the-top personality if you've seen her on the Doctor Who never mind the Buzzcocks episode Mm. I quite like her in that because she's just so Vague. Yeah, so no vague. She's not really there no. at all. Oh. And uh, you see the affection that Tennant has for her. Um, but yet, her power 
on screen is the is the best thing to match Tennant, and Tennant's doctor needed someone to match with him. That's why strong female characters like Donna Noble, strong char- female characters like River Song, played by Alex Kingston, in in the they match well with Tennant's doctor because he's such a overwhelming force. So, and again, she was a comedic actress who played it straight for most of it, and that's when I, you know, you like Donna the most is when she's playing it straight, as opposed to the hijinks of uh, Partners in Crime. I like the balance in um, in the Unicorn and the Wasp of the comedy in there. There's some lovely moments in there, it's put, and if it was done in any other capacity, it would have been too far. But like the you know the poisoning scene and. It is just a ridiculous thing. Like when you see it in when the po- the doctor being poisoned or having the radiation through him in Smith and Jones, when he's shaking at his foot yeah, and he's got yeah, it all in his yeah, shoe and he yeah. puts it in there, and 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 Freeman Ashman there as as uh, Martha Jones just watches and goes, oh okay, that's kind of ridiculous, and that that's where the comedy falls flat because they've got this doctor shaking around doing this weird surreal physical comedy into his shoe, and you go, what's the point of that? But to put it in Unicorn in the Wasp when you've got the doctor David Tennant mugging it as always going oh I'm poisoned I'm poisoned how am I going to you know I need a cure and so then to add to that the ridiculousness of him trying to mime it to Mm. Catherine Tate and her trying to get what it is Harvey Warbang all that type of stuff you need to take it to that extreme that's where the comedy comes from as opposed to just having it on its own it wouldn't have worked if it was just the same situation as with uh, Smith and Jones in my opinion and so you can have a moment of throwing him in the face with with water and eating all the olives and then you know Catherine Tate kissing him and the whole Harvey Wallbanger joke all that type of stuff can you know it was pushed to the extreme and then they forget about it and move on when you know the stuff comes out of his mouth and you go oh he's got the poison out I think she gives her strongest performance in turn left where it's I mean it's it's a it's a sort of a quieter more serious performance that you get from her um, and it's 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 there's elements of you know heart wrenching elements within that story where the family that she's sort of been uh, bedded with uh, are taken away in the truck and she sort of realizes exactly what their fate's going to be and I think that she, uh, Catherine Tate is really good in 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 a story or, uh, like that where she's asked to not necessarily tone it down but. She plays it sort of straighter and more real in air quotes. I think Turn Left pushes it too far, so it's a bit too grim. So you look at something like the Science and the Library two-parter when, especially in the second episode where the Doctor is separated from Donna, so she's going on this journey of falling in love, meeting this guy, having kids in this condensed amount of time. And so you see at the start, she's quite you know cute and quite flirty and quite naughty with you know the guy that she marries and they go fishing and there's a really nice gentle comedy that comes through and but then that can be balanced out with the dramaticness and the dependence on these kids that don't exist so i, I that's where i think she's at her strongest is when she can be allowed to show that comedy interplay but then also show the dr- dramaticness as well that's the same with bernard cribbins though he's a comedy actor primarily in the uk he's known for that Especially but in the Doctor Who, in the uh, Doctor Who, <laughs> Doctor Who movie, uh, you know, in the end of time, I mean, he was the best thing about that. Especially at oh. the end, you know, he sort of gives David Tennant that that look, and his eyes are filling with tears. And it, even my cold, dead heart was affected by that performance. <laughs> and, I mean, the rest of the story is pants. But again, he's another comedic actor doing the drama and doing it really, really well. 
Yeah, I'm going to say, okay, the Nevermind the Buzzcocks episode, if anyone's seen it, it's wonderful. It's great to watch. Tenant's fantastic hosting in it. Um, it's got the infamous Berman mm. line. Mm. Catherine Tate's hilarious. And Bernard Cribbins there. Bernard Cribbins, who's amazing history right there. And you've got Noel Fielding. Mm. Noel Fielding. And he bags out Cribbins all the way through making fun. Like, Cribbins is making these old school jokes, mm. really old school jokes. And, and uh, Noel Fielding's making fun of him in this light way going, oh, you've got to come right with me man oh this is gold and they're going just shut up Noel okay just because you got a weird hat on with with donkey ears doesn't mean you're a comic genius okay actually have some respect for someone who has been doing comedy a lot longer and knows what they're doing Mm. and so that type of thing really annoys me so that's my shout out to Noel Fielding being a bit of a D-I-C-K yeah I can say dick but he was funny in the IT crowd as, yeah, uh, <laughs> Red, Raymond or Redmond, the server guy. Yeah, very. Funny. You know why it's funny? Because it's not. It's stuff that he didn't write. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's the that's the type of thing. It's like on Ocean's Eleven when they were shooting in Vegas. All the big people who, all the fans, all the fans who were there at Vegas. They who were the fans stopping? No, they weren't stopping Brad Pitt. They mm. weren't stopping George Clooney. Who were they stopping? Carl Reiner. Yeah. And it was all the people in Vegas wanting to talk to Carl Reiner about his time with the two thousand man, two thousand year old man with Mel Brooks, the Dick Van Dyke show. Have respect for your history, and that's what they brought out in you know the end of time. They let Bernard show his you know his experience as a comedic actor and as a dramatic, dramatic performer. Yeah. yeah, comedy in the modern series has been a lot harder to find that balance mm. especially in the first season with uh, Eccleston you know you've got the slapstick comedy pushed too far with the fighting aliens and all that type of stuff which was specifically done for a certain age demographic so all those fans wanting hardcore who were outraged but they didn't balance it out that much you get to Moffat's beautiful script of The Empty Child it's got that nice balance of funny ideas funny ideas like someone in a Union Jack t-shirt on a barrage balloon during during the blitz is hilarious thought you think about that guy that's hilarious but you watch it you believe it and you're not there going ha 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 you go you're actually caught up in the moment of it and the the horror of it is around you're making fun of yourself in doctor who is very good like in the old days they'd make john pertwee would be made fun of and he'd make fun of himself the long shank rascal with a mighty nose oh, or yeah. tom baker was all tooth and curls so to have Eccleston there and he's being referred to, you know, making fun of his big ears and his big nose. never They never really did that with Tennant in his first two years. He'd just go, I'm brilliant and incredible. And everyone would go, yes, you are. But then when, Ten, uh, when Tate comes on, she's always calling him Spaceman, making fun of he's just a, like a stick insect. You know, he's just all bones and stuff like that. Making fun of Doc, making fun of Matt Smith has been great. You know, Chinny and, you know. Easter big, Island. Easter yeah. Island head. That's a great joke. So I want more of that. You know, that's what Doctor Who is. Not, you know, you love the lead character because people take him seriously, but they can also make fun of him. And I've heard they're already referring to Capaldi on set as the the grey-haired stick insect in one of the episodes. I don't know if it's in the first one. Some people may have seen that and might be able to justify that. Who, who, Who could have... Seen the the Miami Vice version of it? I'm not sure. I'd pay good money to see the Miami Vice version. <laughs> <laughs> Is it hard to categorise the styles of comedy for the new series? Do you think? Where let's let's talk about Love and Monsters. So Love and Monsters is slapstick. It is. It is out and out slapstick. Russell T's comedy sensibility to comedy is quite hardcore. Mm. quite full on there's no real nuances to it he's got this is a family show it's big blockbuster entertainment on a Saturday night and so the ideas are big 
the costumes are big, the monsters are big, the comedy's big as well. So it's particular writers who can bring in little subtleties and stuff like that. Like there's beautiful... I was going to go off on another tangent about dinosaurs on the spaceship, just little quick-witted stuff. I think it's what we like is the quick-witted stuff where I think a lot of people don't like love and monsters is because it's full in your face as opposed to being a lot more subtler. One of the episodes was homework. I think I'm stealing yours here. The Mark. Lodger? Yeah, The Lodger. Yeah. Lo- the, um, I-, I know I'm in the minority here. The Lodger's my favourite episode of, of season five. I love it because it is. it really shows smith's doctor come out so he gets to play his soccer but he also does that the beautiful moments when it's the doctor not sure of which social convention he is at at the moment i love that type of stuff and a lot of hardcore fans going of course he knows what it is he knows what every year is but just to have the doctor going am i allowed to kiss people on Mm. the cheeks is that what's going on which money do i have to give um and his comments about, you know, you're never going to move anywhere, you're never going to stay because you're scared or all that type of stuff. These horrible things that, are, you go, nobody in civilized society would say that um, was quite good. And it's a dark concept of people being taken and people, you know, being absorbed to run this, this, this ship is quite a horrifying concept. And people being tricked in from their sensibility and they're their sensibility of being a human to want to help a child out or a, an old man and ha- that being taken advantage of. Um, but, but the setup of that episode is it's quite like a romantic comedy, isn't it? Yeah. Where you've got the unrequited love of the housemate and then the doctor comes in as, as the other housemate, sort of like Notting Hill where the crazy <laughs> housemate comes in. That's that sort of setup. That's what I found when I was watching it. I just sort of had to categorize a comedy style. It's it's romantic comedies, but love wins at the end. Same with closing time. Love wins at the end. It does. It does. And I think they miss the mark a little bit with closing time, but they especially yeah, logic gets it right because it is that. I guess it's that more natural thing of you know they pushed it too far in end closing time. We're going you're being turned into a Cyberman. The only thing that can save you is love. Love. All you need is love. Okay. Yeah. When you're in this little moment of just yeah. let's have a, yeah, it's not the entire armada of Cybermen coming back to, to, to haunt you. It's just this moment of, you know, a guy and a girl in this situation. The only thing to snap out of it in that moment was, is, is a beautiful little thing. And Matt Smith's doctor, I think hit the comedy a lot nicer mm. than, Tenant's Doctor was never really, you know, it was funny, but it was very forced, forced. very yeah, pressed. Yeah, it was very forced. Like, yeah. what, a lot of people, well, for me, the moment where I fell in love with Matt Smith's Doctor was at the start of Vampires of Venice, him coming out, coming out of the birthday cake. Oh, yeah. And I remember an interview with, with uh, Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat said, I think the people will get Matt Smith at that era. And then he came out and said, no, they got him straight away. They got him in the 11th hour straight away. And I went, well, not all of us. So I was always along the lines of as soon as he came out of that cake and his hand got stuck on one of the elements of the cake, I just went, that's a doctor we have never seen for a long, we haven't seen for a long time. So yeah, play it subtly, play it with words, play it with thoughts, play it with expressions, play it with, you know, don't ram it down the people's throats. Just don't go, this is comedy, go, this is a situation. And you find the comedy on your own. Let the audience find the comedy. I found that of all the modern doctors, um, I thought that the, the comedy suited Matt Smith more than Tennant and Eggleston. Mm. I mean, as you said, RTD would slap you around the face with every element of the show. I gained a sense of endearment towards Matt Smith in terms of you know the comedy that he was asked to perform. Um, and I think we uh, there's there's not a lot of love out there for Stephen Moffat at the moment. <laughs> I think people forget that 
when he's not being forced to you know grind out scripts that um even as far back as press gang he was able to do that 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 blend of elements really well and you had you know the different characters uh sort of working against and with each other i mean spike and linda day were complete opposites but they found that common ground and and in that fight between them you you had the comedy and i think sort of and they were endearing characters in in each in, in their own way and i think you find that with with, with matt smith and i think a, a lot of the appeal of Matt Smith's portrayal comes in the audience's willingness to embrace him. I mean, he, you know, he's young, he's uh, active, he's joyful, and people respond to that, even though he's playing it in a sort of Davison way. There's an old weary time lord, but there's elements of that uh, vitality and spark that people find appealing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been saying about new Doctor Who is that it's the young actor playing an older man. And now we get to see, and we saw it a little bit with Eccleston, but we'll definitely see it. And we saw it in little sparks of it with John Hurt. But with Capaldi, it's the old man playing the playing it young, mm. as opposed to the old, you know, the young playing it old. So that's what I'm looking forward to seeing is to pl- seeing this, you know, the oldest actor to ever play the Doctor in a regular w- role, bring a youth and vitality but having that everyone's using the word gravitas now everyone's using it it's become the go-to word and i think i even read it in the uh i think even like moffat or or gaddis was using it in to some extent uh but you know it's a given now you look at capaldi and you go right this man has has some city miles on him he's got some city miles but he's also got the credentials of what to do with a dramatic role but the fun and the the surprise will come okay how can he lighten this up because of course he's not going to play it dark the whole time. Everyone was going, okay, John Hurt's in, in the day of the Doctor. He's going to be the war Doctor. He's going to be dark and intense. He's going to be... No, no, he's the Doctor. The Doctor does have those darker elements, but there is a overwhelming sense of positivity to the Doctor. And Capaldi's going to bring that as well. Capaldi loves Doctor Who so much. He's been a fan longer than most of us. So he knows in his heart what he loves about the role to balance that darkness with the light. He's not going to play it all one way because why would he do it? He's a a very in-demand actor. If he's going to challenge, if he's going to accept a role, he's going to want to do it right and also challenge himself. For him to be the Doctor, he has to be happy being in the show. Yes. And I don't think the way he was too enamored with the way the show was being run before. So one of the main reasons he's doing is because I said, yeah, we're going to do it this way. And he's going to say, yeah, I'm on board. I think, yeah, from what I could read from that was, is what everyone has been saying. And I've been thinking, I'm going with younger, when they've cast Tennant and Matt Smith, they're younger actors on the verge of greatness. And so they have less say, they more willing to go along with the show. Mm. And uh, one, they have a lot more focus and power they control. Well, from what I heard from Eccleston's era, he was quite forceful from the go going, this is what I know from what I've done because I've been working professionally for 15, 20 years. So there was a lot of antagonism, a lot of challenges to go, this is how I, I perceive the show as the lead actor, as the focus. Whereas Tennant and Matt Smith were able to just go, well, you know, you take care of that stuff. I'll just follow your lead. Whereas Capaldi has stepped up and go, no, I have this history. I have this heritage. I'm coming into this show and I want to have a say. Mm. And he does have the background. He's, you know, Oscar winner. He's, you know, has proven himself as an award-winning actor. So he has a lot more weight in his opinion because he has the background and the experience yeah. to do it. You know, no one as a 26, 27-year-old actor would walk onto the biggest show in the UK and start throwing his weight around. 
whereas Peter Capaldi can because he does have that experience. No one's going to question him because he's not going to go, you know what, I don't see the Doctor that way. People, no one's going to go, well, what makes you think, oh, that's right, no, you've got, you've got more experience than any of us. We'll go with that. And you can see that in the interview. He was very much, you know, he said stuff, there'll be no flirting. I was very adamant about that, which caused arguments and caused a bit of tension. I didn't use arguments, but he said there was a bit of tension, but I stayed true to my guns. And you could see from the article, if anyone gets a chance to read it, it's an amazing interview. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He knew exactly why he took the role, how he wanted to do it. And there has never been a more confident um, actor or a confident grab of the role and go, not only am I taking this role, I am taking this show in direction that I am happy with. So when we get to see the 12 episodes of season eight, we will see episodes that the lead man has approved of. It's not just going, well, I'll just do whatever I'm said. I'll just read the lines. No, this is an actor who has not sat there and rewritten everything, but just made sure that he wants every single word, every single scene, everything to have a meaning and a purpose, which is very exciting. Boys, um, in many ways, the surprise hit of the 50th anniversary year was the Five Doctors reboot, which um, was an out-and-out comedy, I suppose, poking fun at the show and its participants. Uh, what did we think of that? What I particularly liked about it was it proved that, you know, what I said earlier, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, uh, contradict myself, is comedy worked within the show and because it was out and out comedy and it's the great reflection that that's how you do comedy for Doctor Who a lot of in jokes but it's also a lot of the people involved making fun of themselves a lot of these Doctor Who nerd films or fan films and stuff like that or the comedy that we share as Doctor Who fans about the show they did they made fun so to see Colin Baker do a scene where he has trapped his family in to watch the special edition of the Vengeance of Varos DVD is comedy gold not only because it's a joke that we all know it's a joke that we have done about him but he's doing it about himself mm. beautiful stuff having um, Sylvester McCoy constantly refer to the fact that he's working on the Hobbit comedy gold and to have then Colin Baker make fun of him is great you know and you know the, it's funny he's the man who put it all together Peter Davison and he's in many ways for me the weak link in it because I've seen the documentary from the 90s where him and Mark Strickson are walking through the location of yes. something uh, yeah. and he's there he doesn't care anymore he's there going I'm sorry but it's and you're there going wow this is a man who's trying to cut himself far away who seems begrudgingly connected with it but now oh what's this he's embraced who again at any particular moment he'll mention the fact that he's oh what's that the person who's married to his daughter is david Tennant. and I'm just there seems to be a little bit of now come on in the dark times were you there no you were there begrudgingly whereas you colin bakers you sylvester mccoy's they have been there the whole time no matter how much scorn they get they have loved the show and so to see sylvester and colin do incredibly well uh in the five-ish doctors is great it would it's such a shame that mcgann couldn't have done more because he, he was asked at the uh, the lords of time 2 convention would he have done mm. more and he goes i would have loved to have done more i was doing a play in ireland yeah. yeah and said so, and i said seriously would you have actually like put the the t-shirt on with the mm. with the print of the eighth doctor shirt and run through he goes yeah man i would have done that so, yeah. yeah i'm there going my hat off to you you sexy sexy man <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, let that it was filled with those in jokes that we all make as Doctor Who fans. So anyone outside of Who would not get it and have no idea what it is. And it's mm. just that beautiful, you know, capture of what it is to be a Who fan. It's really weird. It's done by people who are in the show, but it's mostly about what it is to be in love with Doctor Who. It's done very affectionately. And even Barrowman taking the piss of himself, that's, singing his way down to Cardiff. I mean, that, that's hilarious. Well, the, the the part where he, you know, oh, yeah. his big secret is the fact that he's actually, you know, a mild-mannered straight man with a, with, with a wife and three mm. kids is just absolute gold. Mm. And little subtle moments like they're racing after him and you've got Peter Davison and Sylvester McCoy out of breath and Colin Baker's looking at them going, what the hell are you talking about? And my mm. favourite joke is Russell T. Davis's appearance is oh, yeah. the bomb. Yeah. Russell the Davis uh, talking about he can be his own doctor he can be killed Marge, <laughs> Kill Davros pew pew um, and having having the Davison hang up on Russell T Davis is is hilarious so what do you think about it did you were you hanging out for it Rob Peter Davison was tweeting something about it in the lead up to it and I was I didn't know anything about it I I was surprised as anyone else I suppose that it it it, it came out. I did enjoy it. I thought it could have been a little bit tighter. I think the punchlines could have been handled a bit more tighter. Yeah. So I, I think it probably lost a little bit of momentum in that way. But I like you, it, it, it pokes gentle fun at itself uh, and the people involved. I mean, the, the, the key scene for me is, is Stephen Moffat. <laughs> You know the arch manipulator with the two dolls. It 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 says a a lot about Stephen Moffat and b a lot about Stephen Moffat. I mean, you know, he, he can poke fun at himself and he's willing to poke fun at himself. Well, it's funny because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And like, yeah, I think yeah, I think it's more of a it's a it's a celebration. It's it, it works as moments. It doesn't work as a whole piece. But you you talk about those moments. It's sort of like you know, like the opening. You you remember Olivia Coleman with um, with Sean Pertwee. Mm. You you remember that moment. It's a beautiful little moment. You remember the moments as you go along. But as a whole, it, yeah, it was very very loose, which I kind of enjoy about it. It's kind of like let's just put this together. And you don't really want to have anything too tightly scripted when it comes to that type of celebration. Uh, but it's more of the moments as opposed to the whole thing. So you can sit back and go, I remember that moment. I remember Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy sleep on the backseat of the bus, resting heads on each other as they get away from their successful mission of getting onto the 50th anniversary. Little moments like that is what makes it all the, all the you know, like, oh, and Georgia Moffat eating celery and ice cream. Ice cream yeah. Beautiful <laughs> moment, beautiful <laughs> moment. It's a weird paradox within within Doctor Who that it is a Doctor Who parody, but it actually works because it's the jokes that we all make done by the people who are actually in the show, which is just hilarious. And on a budget. Who funded it? Originally, it was going to be a little fan film that Davison was putting together because he'd done these little skits for the Gallifrey conventions. I think the first... Uh, the one he, he couldn't make and the second one he did make. And when he found out that the other Doctors weren't being involved in the 50th, he sort of mentioned to Moffat, do you mind if I do something on the side? And he said, well, actually, how about I'll give you a budget and off you go. Um, he just gave him a crew. Yeah, he gave, gave him off. a crew and off he went. So, yeah. Yeah, and that was Moffat saying, well, you know, this is how I can get the, the, the classic in. Doctor, the yeah. oldies into it. Yeah. And Tom Baker still didn't turn up. Yeah, didn't answer the call. And they're planning a sequel. Peter Davison's planning a sequel. There has been word of it, and I kind of think, you know, just leave it as I'd is. I'd leave it as is, yeah. Don't yeah. go for this difficult second album on that. Leave, <laughs> it, leave it. You know, we've, we've all seen disastrous second albums. 
Exactly. Look at you, Terence Trent Derby. <laughs> uh, yeah, just leave it as is. I saw it in my uh, hotel room in London. Uh... I actually, I actually when I, after the XL convention, I actually forgot completely about it until uh, I saw a tweet about it. I said, oh, I better check it. So I used the hotel's free Wi-Fi and watched it. And uh, <laughs> after the end of it, a very exhausting day, uh, it was yeah, it was great. It was great to watch. And then I watched the Anchorman after that. Ron, oh, Ron Burgundy. I was, I was Ron gonna. Oh, Ron, <laughs> I was. I was gonna. I was gonna mention that in many ways, Five Ish Doctors is kind of like Anchorman. Yeah. Anchorman is made up of moments. You don't remember the storyline. No. You don't. It doesn't really have a storyline. No. It's just a sequence of these funny bits that you can put together that kind of seem to have developed from improvisation and on the set. Mm. Whereas you look at the Five Ish Doctors, it's very similar. It doesn't. It's not a the whole it's sort of like the little bits that make it what it is so I was going to compare it to Anchorman and you brought it back That's and awesome. even Ron Burgundy did something for the 50th that was great yeah. that was Capaldi? wonderful who? yeah yeah Dr. yeah who? <laughs> who is this Peter Capaldi Capaldi Doctor yeah. who you're fired yeah <laughs> No, I was just thinking that the the uh, the pre um, the little teasers that were before the fiftieth anniversary screening at the cinema were, were quite amusing. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of love from the, the lead actors that they're willing to sort of send themselves up a little bit like that. If it's done in that type of you know, when it's out of the show or it's like satelliting the show, it it can they can let their hair down. When it's actually within the show, you have to follow you know the the beats. The comedy within Day of the Doctor I quite liked. But to have that moment of you know having Tennant and uh, Matt Smith interplay off each other in the pre-show thing is quite funny, mm. and the Strax piece, piece I absolutely love. I always love those type of you know safety documentaries done in the style of you know a Centauran delivering it, which is really really good. Strax and, is actually tolerable for me. Yeah, and Strax that, Strax yeah. talking about every popcorn is actually alive, mm. and so every time you swallow it, you hear it scream. I think is <laughs> one of the funniest things. Ever. Can we touch on Strax just a little bit? Because the Paternoster gang, in my heart, is a little bit of a dubious creation, and I find Strax to be very distracting from everything that's going on around him in the story. What what do we feel about Strax? I know what you guys feel about the Paternoster gang. I've heard it much of uh, many many times, and I actually like the Paternoster gang. I don't think they've been fully realized there have been mm. moments where like the uh, the crimson horror i think captures them quite well having jenny go and investigate and have strax being able to run in with these laser guns and all that type of stuff and vastra vastra and strax and jenny need to be given more life but it seems like they everyone goes oh they should have their own spin-off of course they should you've got a a, a crime solving lizard woman who is also a master of swords you've got a gymnastic a housemaid who can also go undercover and you've got a, a butler who is an alien warrior from another planet who's also a nurse that screams a series in itself but having them as the sidekicks to the doctor but that's all the stuff that the doctor has to do they can't solve any crimes or defeat the villains or anything because that's the doctor's job that's why they need to go off and do their own show so you can see we haven't fully seen the potential of Vastra, Jenny and Strax because they're you know they're tied back by the fact that they're playing sidekicks to the lead man so Vastra's never really fully realized herself we haven't seen her fully go sick with her weaponry and all her investigative skills we see a little bit of it in, in Crimson Horror and the same with the other three I think uh, I quite like them and I love the concept of Strax as a unique uh, Centauran I don't see him as how the Centaurans are seen now, I see them as a one particular Centauran who's kind of been domesticated. He's the domesticated Centauran who has the urges there, but he doesn't know fully how to realize them. So I'm in the, I know I'm in the minority amongst the three of us, 
but I quite like them. I'm very interested to see how they are in uh, uh, Deep Breath. Is it Deep Breath? Breathe yeah, Deep. Deep, deep, deep Breath, yeah. Allegedly. Deep Heat. Deep Heat. Deep Heat. You know, I think the execution is not as good as the idea. I think that's my um, bone of contention with the whole idea of the Past Another Gang. That as you, and you're absolutely right. They, they're not given enough time to, to uh, breathe or move and become fully realized characters. I mean, Jenny is Jenny is a bit of a blank slate to me. Um, and I think that, uh, personally, I think that Strax is, is too over the top. But, you know... Um, He's given dumb comedy to do, isn't he, really? He's just made to be look like a fool. There's some, lo- there's some lovely moments in... There's, there's little moments which I like, and I see the potential of them in... Yeah, with the the snowman, I saw Jenny and Vastos sprouting more politics than actual plot points. So that they're going, we're married, we're a couple. Oh, we're we're going against the norm of Victorian era. Wasn't the Victorian era repressed? Yes, we all know that. But stuff like the Crimson Horror is quite good because you see Vastra investigating. You see Jenny going undercover, and you see her still prim and proper, but you know, trying to be brave and work through. You see. You know, Strax trying to deal with lukewarm. I, I, I still get a kick out of Strax not knowing the difference between boys and girls. I still get a kick out of him wanting to disintegrate everything. I still get a kick out of that first scene at the name of the Doctor when he's, of course, he's going up to the North to get involved in, you know, fight clubs. <laughs> I get a joy out of that. I know not many people do, but I see the potential there and I see little moments that I've probably put a bit invest a bit more than normal there are better writing for them better writing better writing that would be uh that'd be good well strax in particular well there we go we started off going we all like things and now we've we've worked our way through and we've actually talked and we found our differences but we still like each other you know what's won this day love love all you need is love all you need is love the rom-com ready to (laughs) go we need to have some really kick-ass you know richard curtis music do you know richard curtis knows music really well apparently he does he loves his music he does we'll fade it right up now (laughs) i feel like i'm crying as i'm looking at my own artworks in the future i'm (laughs) I'm just crying (laughs) because because with without you know you know, uh, unhappiness, you can't be truly happy. Exactly. You need to have, you know, you can't have light without dark. Well, that's the happiness patrol, isn't it? <laughs> that's what the doctor says exactly. at the end to Helena A, doesn't he? Oh, I love the happiness patrol. Anyone else? Anyone else? I have to say it to be able to love it, so I'm not quite sure yet. Haven't you seen it? Oh, I, I, I keep on promising. I know, I know. I'm a bad fan. What can I say? I remember seeing it at university uh, in a friend's uh, dorm room. <laughs> Thinking, why am I watching Doctor Who when I could be out drinking? But, you know. We all did crazy things at university, man. It's all right. We all chucked on our episodes of Happiness Patrol, did that full studio recording. And, oh, it was, it, yeah. oh yes. It's, it's, we went crazy, man. I, again, it's like season 17 for me. I enjoy it more as an adult than what I did as a snotty-nosed teenager. <laughs> who, uh, was outraged. That and Paradise Towers. I was outraged at the time. See, Paradise Towers could have been a lot of good work. Paradise Towers is a fascinating concept. If it was done with Cartmore fully in control, like in the last season, and Ace there, and the lighting turned down, and the the light- director actually. Well, you guys direct- mentioned that, didn't you? When you did a couple of podcasts, you said if you could do an old story with a new Doctor, wasn't? Didn't someone mention Paradise we Towers? We did definitely. Yes, yes, we did. Callback, callback. Go back and listen to it, guys. All the previous podcasts are amazing, and they've always been at the high standard of technological advancement as well. <laughs> Oh, if we get this black. I think we'll have to. talking like that. <laughs> this yeah. is the comedy episode, right? It is this is okay. Right, yeah. okay. Mm. 
Gentlemen, thanks so much for having me on talking about comedy here at uh, 42 to Doomsday. It's been an absolute pleasure. I have to head off now. But before we go, any uh, final thoughts from you, Rob? There's always laughter in my heart. (laughs) What about you, Mark? When I'm feeling down, I always put on City of Death. (laughs) Because that, to me, is the... That's where it's got everything right. And even Philip Seagal... I was going to say Stephen Seagal. But even Philip Seagal, the the man who, who... made the TV movie for better or for worse you said City of Death was a template for him to do the US version of Doctor Who I don't know what happened <laughs> but it was a good template to use and uh, yes City of Death to me is wonderful I can see yeah running through Paris hand in hand is yeah. kind of like Grace and the Doctor on the motorbike I can see it that yeah. the problem is when you get in bed with Fox you get in bed with the devil hello Rupert if you're listening <laughs> I'm sure you are <laughs> if you could plug us in any of your newspapers Rupert that would be fantastic <laughs> Come on, have a bit of love for Australia. <laughs> Take that citizenship back, Rupert. Yeah. <laughs> How can people contact you, Rob, and also get out some details for hopefully we've got some listeners in Chicago who can go along and see your fantastic show? Uh, I'll be in Chicago for three performances. I'm doing a Thursday... August 28th at 10 p.m. I'm doing Saturday the 30th of August at 7 p.m. and the 31st of August at 4 p.m. Different times and I'll be at the Deep Dish stage. As everyone knows, the Deep Dish Pizzas of Chicago. I'll be there. That's a deep breath. (laughs) I will. Deep heat. Um, But if you want to keep in touch with me, if you want to spread on the information about my Chicago season, you can go to my website, robloyd.com.au. You can follow me on Twitter, at, at Future Robbie, double B Y. Uh, the Facebook page is Rob Lloyd Who Me. Uh, so that's facebook.com forward slash Rob Lloyd Who Me. Uh, I've got my YouTube account, which is Future Robbie, double B Y. So yeah, just keep in touch with me on all the mediums. I'm on Instagram, Future Robbie. So much to keep in touch with. I'm even on LinkedIn. And I don't even know you why. I don't even know why I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. I get, the only I update it every couple of weeks going, I'm still here. I'm not using it properly, but I don't know what to do. So um, so I'm around. All my details are there. And if you know anyone in Chicago, if you're an American nearby the Windy City, at the end of August, I'll be there. And I'm flying to, and I'm missing who? I am missing Capaldi and who so I can uh, actually do this. I can give you a copy before you go. Yeah, but it's black and white. Black and white. And, <laughs> it's Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but I'm not the... <laughs> Okay, I'm sold. I'm sold now. Instead of the CGI, they've got the little hand puppet things Ah. with the green slime coming out. So, yes. Bandrel style. Bandrels. Yeah, the Bandrel ambassador. Coming (laughs) soon to a big finish production near you. 22 CD set. I think they made an announcement online. It was on Twitter or something like that. Or some, I don't know if it was a celebration of someone going, at this very moment, Big Finish has done more product of Doctor Who than the actual classic series. So they've done more material, more stories, more than the actual official Doctor Who. Wow. Yeah, and you're there going, that, why does that scare me and not actually fill me with joy? That's why we're not reviewing it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that right, Rob? Other Rob. 100% correct, other Mark. <laughs> Okay, Rob, thank you for coming down to the uh, 42 to Doomsday Bunker and uh, spending some time with us. We wish you all the best for your gig in Chicago and we'll definitely get you back in a couple of months and you can tell us all about it and, uh, yeah, all the best. Well, if you could do my next intro in the style of Quantum Leap and Doctor Who, that'd be that'd be amazing. I'll do Ghostbusters for you. <gasps> okay, I'll take Ghostbusters. I'll take Ghostbusters next time. Yeah. Ghostbusters slash Doctor Who. Who are you going to call? 
för att du åker Torchwood Sorry, I'm choking Spinger comedy, there you go <laughs> So that's tonight's episode, we hope you enjoyed it uh, Just before we go, we've actually updated our underutilized blog An unloved blog actually We've been spending the last couple of weeks getting that sorted So go and check it out We've put on there our uh, mission to the unknown statement Our manifesto of why we're doing the, the podcast And also a bit of a bio on, our, on ourselves as well So go and check that out and leave some comments on there as well Because we're actually looking at them and approving them and we'd love to get more comments from our listeners so yeah go and check it out at 42 to doomsday at wordpress.com i'd just like to point out that some of my bio is actually true i think three lines of my bio is true but it's all good and also just a reminder you can subscribe to us via itunes player fm and stitcher.com and you can go to our blog and subscribe from there i finally worked out how to do it technically so there you go So thanks once again for everyone for listening. Uh, We'll see you next time. I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. All the best. Thank you, Rob. See you, guys. You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Rob and Mark. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon.